0: So I would like to welcome everybody here to Drisha's Widdersman and the first part of a two-part series, Who is Wise, One Who Eats Well, and Perspectives on Health and the Good Life by Sarah Zager. Sarah Zager is a doctoral candidate in Religious Studies and Philosophy at Yale University, where her research focuses on the influence of Judaism and Christianity on moral philosophy. Originally from Albuquerque, New Mexico, Sarah earned an MA in Religion from the University of Chicago Divinity School and a BA from Williams College. She was awarded the Leo Beck Fellowship for the study of German Jewry and was a David Hartman Center Fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America. She has also learned at Yeshivat Hadar. She has written for the Lairhouse, Jew School, the Journal of Jewish Ethics, and Nashim. And without further ado, Sarah Zeger.
1: Thank you so much for the lovely introduction. It is really a joy to uh, bring the warmth of Torah to this um, you know, kind of strange winter that we're all, um, living through. Um, I want to just give you a little bit of background about why, like, what we're going to do over these two sessions, and what are the questions that are that are motivating me and trying to introduce you to these texts. So we're going to spend the, the next two days kind of studying the life of. I will venture to say the strangest chapter of my Maimonides' uh, Mishnah Torah, my Maimonides' halachic code. Which deals with a whole series of kind of odd advice that he gives you. So things like which side of the, your body you should sleep on, um, what kinds of foods you should and shouldn't eat, etc. And not not foods you shouldn't should eat in terms of like what is kosher and not kosher, but actually just like what he thinks is like good to eat or not. And I'm interested in this for two reasons. First is actually, it's, a, it's an interesting window into how we think about food and health um, and how Maimonides understands those things in the framework of kind of Jewish, Jewish culture and Hanasba. So in that way, kind of the substance of it is very interesting. But I also want to present over the next two days, this is a kind of object lesson in how we read texts from the tradition that seem on the face of it to be like just too wacky to do anything useful. Um, so I think that's a kind of experience that we have sometimes encountering Jewish texts. We find texts that are just like really strange for one reason or another. And I think I think probably we will, not everybody always agrees about what it is they find strange, but I think probably we'll be on the same page that at least some of the advice given here is pretty wacky. Um, so I want to give this as a kind of object lesson to think about like, what do we do with texts that are very much part of the Jewish tradition, but just seem really weird? So I'm hoping that over the course of these two days, you will have both a sense of like why this wacky chapter of the Torah is interesting kind of in its own right. And also a set of tools for thinking about how we relate to texts that just seem weird, right? Not texts that are like, oh, this is so objectionable. How do I square it with my contemporary values, right? That's a different kind of conversation. What we do with texts that are just like, they're just too strange to to make head or tail of. So that's where I want to kind of go go over the course of these two sessions. So today, in the first session, we are going to spend some time just getting some background on what is Maimonides thinking about food and why is he thinking those things? That's kind of the first piece of background. And then the second piece of background is what does Maimonides think himself to be doing in the Mishnah Torah such that it seems to him a good idea to give you lots of strange advice um, about all of this like all of these different things. Um, and with that preparation, then I'm gonna send you into a, a pretty brief to see to just like gather a sampling of the wacky things that are in this chapter. We're not gonna read the whole chapter together because that would take actually more than the hour and a half that we have provided. And I think kind of wouldn't let us answer the, the questions that I just just put before you, which are like what is this ta- what is this chapter as a whole doing? Assuming that like we're not necessarily going to be able to achieve Ramban's detailed plan for sleeping on your left side and then slipping over and sleeping on your right side or whatever you know strange advice he provides. So that's where we're headed. Um, so today we're going to kind of try to understand the text in its own terms and then on Thursday we'll spend some time looking at how Postgame have actually used this text to decide halakhic even when let's say it's not super obvious like what halakhic meaning any of these pieces of advice have we're going to look at a couple of contemporary tools that will sort of play with what we can get out of this, on the face of it, pretty strange little text. So that's our plan. Sound good, everybody? Yeah. Love to see nods and and you know human human movement. Okay. Hooray. So I am going to um, share screen so we can get ready to look at this text. If you want to look at it in Google Docs. If that is your preferred mode, you are most welcome to do that as well. I believe the link should be in the chat or we will be momentarily if you came in a little bit later. Awesome. Somebody give me a thumbs up if you see the text and it's a size that like you can actually read. Hooray, great, good. So here's what I wanna do. We're gonna start off by situating Maimonides' general views about food in the broader project of what he's trying to do in the guide of the perplexed. So we're not going to spend a whole story on like what is status of Maimonides' guide. I want to zero in on just a couple things. Maimonides wants to give a story about what the overall role of the mitzvot are, and he's very—he's a good Aristotelian, so he loves to make categories. Um, So he'll divide everything up in lots of categories. He's got 14 in all, but we're going to look at the kind of two meta categories that he uses to organize the reasons for the commandments that he provides. And in doing so, I think you'll get an insight into what he thinks food questions about what we eat are actually important for. And I think you might be surprised about what he thinks those questions are are important. So okay, here we go. This is a kind of, this is the beginning of chapter 26 of part three of the Guide to the Perplexed, and he's going to announce to you what he thinks the role of the law, i.e. halacha as a kind of general entity is for. Here we go. The law as a whole aims at two things, the welfare of the soul and the welfare of the body. So far, so good. As for the welfare of the soul, it consists in the multitudes, he just means every, every person as opposed to a good philosopher like himself, acquiring correct opinions corresponding to their respective capacity. So some people can get the right ideas from philosophy and contemplation, but for the rest of us mere mortals, you need to say schmah twice a day so you get it in your head that actually there's only one God. Oh, story for another day. We'll spend some time talking about that, but that's not going to be kind of central to our conversation for the moment. The question is, what does he think the welfare of the body is and how does halakha kind of click into the welfare of the body? So let's just, before we see what he actually says, it's worth just like playing out the kind of different options here. So you might say, oh, well, it's, it's not healthy to eat certain kinds of foods together. And so, right, there's a kind of some uh, archaeologist types like to, to proffer versions of this narrative or to debunk versions of the narrative of like, oh, kashrut is actually about cleanliness and it's about food safety. And like, that's what it's about. The, the, the idea that we have regulations about what we eat is actually just about preserving health. My mind is never gonna go that far in part because I think he sees people around him who don't have the same dietary practices that Jews do and he knows that they can be perfectly healthy. And in fact, he is a doctor to a large uh, Muslim, Muslim community. So as for the welfare of the body, this is what he's gonna say, what the welfare of the body really is. It comes about by the improvement of their, their being the multitude, ways of living with one another. Okay, this is achieved through two things. One of them is the abolition of their wronging each other. This is tantamount to every individual among the people not being permitted to act according to his will and up to the limits of his power, but being forced to do that which is useful to the whole. The second thing consists in the acquisition by every human individual of moral qualities that are useful for life in society so that the affairs of the city may be ordered. There's two things that the welfare of the body kind of gets at through halacha. The first is people will stop wronging one another because they'll realize that they can't just do whatever they want. They won't be able to do just like follow their desires to their heart's content. And second, they will develop a set of moral qualities that will eventually let politics be organized. I think it's just worth like pausing on the kind of breadth of that claim. He thinks that if you kind of, the this, this system of regulation of eating that he's that's provided through kashrut is designed to maintain the social order. That's a kind of big claim in a lot of ways. Um, Right. Like next time you like mess up in the kitchen with your spoons, you're like, oh, yes, I'm maintaining the social order. There's something kind of bizarre about that. But the idea is it will teach you a certain kind of self-control, which is necessary for social progress. And that is integral to this, the, the health of the body right, or the welfare of the body. So you might have thought that, oh, when we want to say that the regulations about eating and other kinds of things are, are designed to be about the welfare of the body, you might think that's actually to do with like what I ingest and how it affects my body. No, these rules are designed to regulate the social work. That's their function and that preserves my body because it, it creates a kind of like almost social contract like situation where people aren't you know just like doing whatever and potentially acting violently. So this is a kind of I just want to like if you apply it to regulation about eating which is the only thing he's referencing here um, but it's definitely part of it. It's it's really kind of striking that he thinks that actually there's something Im- importantly social about this, and not just um, not just kind of physical. I want you to hold that in your head for it when we get into chapter four of Social because I want you to see to what extent you see that borne out in the actual advice that he decides to give. Questions about that before we proceed? Feel free to just unmute yourself, pop something in the chat. that stuff anybody
0: oh
2: it's not it's just not that weird because we have such things we say here in america where they don't say it in some other place that you know we don't eat dogs and horses and to some extent we have this feeling like that preserves the social order in some way that it, it it expresses our feelings about animals it whatever that may be, it's just not that weird to say that the way we eat preserves a social order.
1: Good, so I think it's definitely true that like what, and, and you can think about like the way the environmental movement now talks about eating animals as a project, as refraining from eating animals as like a, something designed to maintain, um, you know, all kinds of social structures that might be threatened by climate change. Um, so yeah, there's a way in which this kind of clicks in really nicely to contemporary questions about what we eat and don't eat. But I think at the moment that you're going to try to say that, like, the reason that I have to use this spoon and not that spoon is because of the social order, you're going to have a harder time. Now, maybe you say to yourself, oh, well, for those cases where it's not so obvious, then I'm going to jump into the welfare of the soul category. Right? You say, oh, this business about spoons, it's not about the welfare of the body, it's about the welfare of the soul. Which I think often is sort of how, how some of this like kind of the more arbitrary feeling parts of Kashrut can be talked about, right? It's a, it's a way of maintaining a certain kind of connection to God, a certain kind of Yusha, something like that. But then I think you're going to run up against an interpretive problem in Maimonides, right? If you want to think that on your own, I think you've got good, good basis to do that in the tradition in certain ways. But if you want to think that Maimonides thinks that, you may have have an issue, because it seems like, what for him, the welfare of the soul consists in the multitudes acquiring correct opinions corresponding to their respective capacity. Maybe that I have to use this spoon and not that spoon is designed to teach me that there's only one God, just what Maimonides want, and God doesn't have a body. Maybe that's true, but again, I think you're hard pressed to really argue that. Um, so, Sarah.
2: Sarah? Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you can you hear me, Helene.
1: Yeah, I can hear you.
2: I just wanted to say that I feel that all the mitzvahs in general um, are the training grounds for for society because it trains, you, like you said, to have self control. When each individual person has self control in their own environment, then as a society we have self control and there's less
1: crime in general. Right, so I think that's exactly the argument that he wants to make. I think he wants to say, this will teach you a certain kind of self-control that will be necessary for maintaining social boundaries. Then I think we have a whole series of questions about like, how good is it at actually doing that? And if you're Maimonides and you live alongside and kind of deeply enmeshed in a non-Jewish community, you gotta ask yourself, well like, okay, What about these other people who don't have all of our same rules? They have different sets of practices and maybe they too learn self-control through their own food regulations, right? Like he is mostly interacting with Muslims who have their own set of intense um, regulations around what they eat. But it does seem like, so maybe he says, oh, they learn it there, we learn it our way. Um, But there's, the whole project is designed to get you a certain kind of self-control. The question then is like, how good is it at actually doing that? And and, and how do we, do, does that account match our kind of lived reality of, of living with these regulations? Well, I think that's a, that's a question that's that's a sort of more personal one that we can maybe come back to it at the end, but I think it's worth um, like knowing that the, this account is there and thinking a little critically about like to what extent it matches that birth test.
2: Well, the most important thing is that it develops Yirat shemayim, and that, you know when you leave a child with a person that has Yirat shemayim, they can trust them; they're going to take care of that child and not harm them.
1: Yeah. So I think that's that's the claim for him. I mean, he is like a little, depending on which which Rambam is your Rambam, right? And um, the, the famous joke: there's my and there's your Maimonides. Um, if you if you're if your Maimonides is one who's like into the Skarva onesh stuff, then sure. Um, if you're like not so sold on that, that reading of what the Rambam is doing, then like how the category of Yirat-Shamayim of, or fear of heaven kind of plugs in here is a harder question. Um, but it's definitely like overall, right, he's going to have a strong story about character development as understood as Chochmah, is wisdom, which he's going to understand in the context of his Broader philosophical project. All right. Anyone else questions? Okay. Great. Good. Now he's going to move on to give you a nice story about what he thinks is like the overall kind of project of humanity. Um, he's going to use gendered language here. Here, I don't think it's super important that it's all that gendered. You could probably replace it with human being, but you would be kind of writing over what uh, what he has to say. Just like, you know, to, to, to know. Man has two perfections. Right? So because he's a good Aristotelian, he's always aiming at what does it mean for a human person to kind of develop to their best form? A first perfection, which he means not just like it's gonna be first in my list of two, but first in the sense that it's kind of like philosophically prior or more important, which is the perfection of the body. Okay, oh, sorry, philosophically subsidiary, not the other way around. And an ultimate perfection, right? That's the more important philosophical one, which is the perfection of the soul. So perfection of soul is kind of the most important thing. Perfection of the body is some sort of preliminary. The first perfection consists in being healthy and in the very best bodily state. And this is only possible through his finding the things necessary for him whenever he seeks them. So it's it's like almost a sort of hierarchy of needs kind of picture, but like you got to be able to find the stuff you need, and that's gonna be what allows you to be healthy. Okay, not so shocking. These are his food and all other things needed for the governance of his body. Notice, notice the word governance is like actually doing work here, right? He wants you to like understand that your body is something that has to be controlled, um, such as shelter, bathing, and so forth. This cannot be achieved in any way by the isolated individual. So there is again the social piece. The only way that you're going to be able to take care of your body is if other people help you. In this way, he's like way before his time. Um, the like eth- philosophical ethicists in like the 1980s are, sort of start to say, oh my goodness, we just discovered that human beings can't survive without all kinds of care for other from other people. Isn't this a great like philosophical intervention? There's a moment here for like a line that the Rambam is like sort of into that. He, he like kind of anticipates where, where the tradition is gonna end up going. Okay, um, this can't be achieved by any isolated individual for an individual can attain all this through a political, can only attain all this through a political association, being it being already known that man is political by nature. This being a kind of famous pronouncement of Aristotle, his uh, philosophical teaching. All right, it's also clear that this noble and ultimate perfection can only be achieved after the first perfection is achieved. Okay, you might've gotten a little, little spun around there in the nice Aristotelian language, but the noble and ultimate perfection, i.e., the perfection of the soul, is only achieved if you get perfection of the body first. So, the, for the Ramdam, the only way that you're going to actually achieve some kind of real, like philosophical perfection, and therefore for him, theological and religious perfection, is if your body's taken care of. So. On the one hand we might say that feels like really familiar um, and it seems like again kind of hierarchy of needs thing where like if your basic needs are met then you can embark on some project of like thinking about the nature of god but if your bodily needs aren't met you're going to be distracted by trying to take care of all those basic needs so on the one hand that might seem very familiar but i also want to name the fact that at the same time there's another thing going on which is for him if you're someone who is bodily, who's for some reason, not gonna find the things necessary for you whenever you seek them, including I think for him, like just being disabled, you cannot achieve that ultimate perfection of like real intellectual, full intellectual community with communion with God, which is like for the Rambam, where it's all at. So that, that seems, that's notable and you'll see um, some of this kind of two leveled way of thinking where like there's one thing for bodies that can get everything they need and then there's another thing for what he is gonna refer to as sick bodies, right? So um, hold that in your head because it'll help you interpret some of the wacky stuff he, he says in chapter four but for the moment it's worth noting that he basically thinks if you can't, if your body is somehow like fundamentally lacking or your situation leads you to be fundamentally lacking you can't achieve the same kind of theological connection with God that someone who didn't have those problems uh, would be able to, just worth, worth noting and, and kind of recognizing some of the problems there. All right, it is also clear that this noble and ultimate, okay, sorry, we read that already. Um, for a man cannot represent to himself an intelligible, just means a thing that you can think about, i.e. you cannot think about something that's translated into normal person English as opposed to Rambam translation is, even when taught to understand it, and all the more so cannot become aware of it of his own accord, if he is in pain or very hungry or is thirsty or is hot or very cold, right? We've all had the experience of being distracted by being physically uncomfortable. But once the first perfection has been achieved, it is possible to achieve the ultimate perfection, which is indubitably more noble and is the only cause of permanent preservation, i.e. the only thing that's gonna get you really Long-term kind of triata etim status, or at least like olam habas status, as if you are kind of plugged into this. Okay. Questions or comments about that? As far as we, as far as we go. Um, yeah, in terms of a
2: person being disabled and not being able to reach their uh, closeness with God, I think that's uh, highly individual because there are many people that have been, uh, you know, uh, in those kind of states have re- reached a higher connection with God. Uh, Rahami right. r- Rahamim yeah. Cohen is one example.
1: <laughs> exactly. So I think it's actually really important to note the way that he is actually departing from important sources in the rabbinic tradition, which seem to show that there's an even stronger connection with God when you are um, if physically vulnerable, right? Or even in pain. Um, and there's like, you can you can sort of mine the tradition for that that's sort of all over the place. And he's, he knows that he's doing that. In other words, he knows his stuff and he's buying into a certain kind of Aristotelian picture. I'm not, okay, background note. I'm not into the like, ooh, Judaism and Aristotle, who wins in the Rambam game, which is a game that has sustained many people through long academic careers. Um, <laughs> but is not the game that i'm interested in playing at this at this juncture but i do think it's notable that here he really is taking a step away from at least some sources in the tradition which seem to say that somebody who's in either in just physical pain but or has um, is is especially vulnerable is themselves like kind of has a stronger connection to god so he knows what he's doing and i think he wants a picture where there's an integrated bodily and spiritual life, that those two things are held together, which is precisely what makes it possible for him to say that it's actually in order to be a good, wise person, you better follow my culinary advice, which is kind of where we're headed by the end of, the end of our time today. So thank you for pointing that out. That's, that's super useful.
2: By the way, I'm a dietician, and I use all of the things that he said in my practice. I don't even work with Jews.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, there you go. So, you know, maybe there is actually like, if you go hunting, the medical literature has all kinds of things. Um, There's an amazing paper published in a medical journal called Maimonides' advice on hemorrhoids before it's time, question mark. So there we have it. Um, Okay, Nathan asked in the chat, is he contradicting himself saying no one can do this alone and People who can't do things alone can't do it completely. I think he kind of is. I think that's really perceptive. Um, In a way, he's like, yeah, but I think fundamentally for him, there's a kind of normal amount of dependency. And then there's a kind of dependency that's crippling, not like Bidaska, right? There's a kind of uh, uh, dependency that's so problematic that it will, will stop you from moving forward. And there's a kind of dependency that's just the normal kind of integration into the social order, but I think you're you're right to see some tension in those in those two lines. All right. So from this this little chunk of the guide, you we should have been able to see a few things. One, it seems like these regulations about the body are designed to maintain. Oh, I'd order. help
0: you if you wait an hour, honey.
2: No, do it now. Oh, God.
1: Can we, can we mute someone?
0: Yeah, All done. Sorry about that.
1: Thank you. No problem. Um, oh, I guess, remember to mute and unmute correctly. It is harder than it looks, though. Um, so it's important to note, I think, on the one hand, eating the rules about eating are social, one. Two, it seems like the body is only is important and central for maintaining the social order, but it's never kind of fundamental. It's always instrumental. It's always designed to get you somewhere. It's not actually the main event. And so that again, I think is going to help us read like what do we think Kashrut is doing, sort of bigadul, like in general, um, because we'll we'll will be sort of putting it in the welfare of the body, body category uh, socially. Okay, no problem. Sometimes everyone forgets to unmute them, mute themselves correctly. We all have rahmanas on each other in this difficult Zoom reality. All right, good. So I want us. Oh, these these notes crept in here. We're just going to get rid of them. Um, I want us to see now an important passage in the Rambam which seems to suggest that he kind of thinks that the body is something we ought to transcend. And this is a passage that's sort of furthest on the spectrum toward what goes on in the body isn't actually that important at all. Um, And I've shown you some other passages that seem to pull the pendulum the other way, but I want to give you kind of an honest picture. All right. And so, To the totality of purposes of the perfect law. All there belong the abandonment, depreciation, and restraint of desires insofar as possible. So whereas before we saw, oh, this is, we need to make sure your needs are met, here he actually wants you to kind of abandon, depreciate, I think meaning like just not take all that seriously, and restrain some of those desires for the things you need. Not quite a contradiction there, but there is a kind of internal tension a little bit. So that these should be satisfied only insofar as is necessary. Eat the minimum. Do the minimum that you need. You already know that most of the lust and licentiousness of the multitude consists in an appetite for eating, drinking, and sexual intercourse. right? So not only is it we learn self-control, and then we learn not to disrupt the social order by, I don't know, behaving never shoveling our sidewalks or doing something that's sort of not good for the social order, right? Um, But actually like most of the bad things that happen in the social order happen because we are um, not dealing with our physical desires appropriately. Therefore, we should try to minimize those desires as much as possible. This is what destroys man's last perfection, what harms him also in his first perfection perfection, i.e. what makes it impossible to get to the intellectual perfection and what means you'll never get to the bodily perfection, and what corrupts most of the circumstances of the citizens and of the people engaged in domestic governance. Also, everyone who's bad at government is bad because they don't deal with their physical desires appropriately. For when only the desires are followed, as is done by the ignorant, the longing for speculation is abolished. Right? You're not going to do good philosophy and therefore, for the Rambam, you're going to be a lousy person. And the body is corrupted, and the man to whom this happens perishes before this is required by his natural term of life. You're gonna die if you do all this stuff. Thus, cares and sorrows multiply, mutual envy, hatred, and strife, taking aim at, aim at taking away what the other has. Multiply all the bad stuff gets a lot worse. All this is brought about by the fact that the ignoramus regards pleasure alone as the end to be sought for his own sake. Therefore, God, may his name be held sublime, employed a gracious ruse, um, fascinating little phrase, th- through giving us certain laws that destroy this end and turn thought away from it in every way. He forbade everything that leads to lusts and mere pleasure. So, I mean, there's a lot going on in this little passage, but I think one thing that's worth kind of noting is this last two sentences. God in God's kindness has intervened in such a way that there will be laws that will prevent us from becoming people who are overly licentious. And that, at least here in kind of its most intense version this statement is like the broadest it can possible possibly be. God forbid everything that leads to lust and mere pleasure. And we might ask, right? I have eaten many good pieces of you know kosher chocolate cake. They have been lovely, and I have indeed. I did not need these pieces of chocolate cake, but I really enjoyed them, right? They were basically frivolous. So. I don't know, right? He wants to say he forbids everything that leads to less and mere pleasure. I'm not sure that's what's really happened, but for him, that's how he's gonna read the whole system. So if this line is gonna become important in sort of interpreting chapter four, because if you really believe that um, this is true, And you think, ah, the Maimonides is giving a comprehensive picture of law in the Mishnah Torah, then you're gonna have a story where actually chapter four is designed to kind of catch the chocolate cake cases, what I'm gonna call them, right? The cases where it seems like, according to the laws of kashrut, as he lays them out in the actual sections about kashrut, this would be permitted, but it would be just kind of gratuitous, it would be just for a pleasure in a way that he thinks could be destructive, that is going to be caught by, ca- by chapter four. So if you really want to lean on this line, that's what you're going to do. If you don't want to lean on this line, Labriot, you have lots of good options um, for doing that as well. So we're going we're gonna to see that in a moment. I want to pause here for questions before we hop over to like, what's the Mishnah Torah and why would he include these things? So far, so good. Questions, comments, frustrations. Okay. Also, feel free to to use the chat if that's a, a better mode for you at the moment. Okay. I want to just spend two minutes on like why. What does the Ramam think the Mishnah Torah is for? Why do I want to do this? Because. If we're going to interpret a wacky chapter of the Mishnah Torah, like chapter four, you want to know what was he trying to do in the whole thing? And does this chapter, as I have interpreted it, match what he said he was going to do? Now, you might say, oh, well, it doesn't match so well. Maybe his intentions or his stated intentions are kind of don't match the text. And maybe that's just kind of the way it goes. Maybe you say, oh, I better correct my interpretation so it matches what he said the text was for. I think either of those is a good and in, you know, possible interpretive strategy. But if you want to understand like, why is this wacky text here? One thing you're going to need to do is think about what did he say the text was supposed to be doing? So the Raman begins the Mishnah Torah with a kind of detailed story about how we ended up with this Thing we call the Torah and how we then ended up with this thing we call halacha, and so this com- this section I've given you comes at it's like forty two of forty five or something um, at the end of that discussion, and he's going to give you a nice um, story about like what I am what am I trying to do here? So here's what he says: davar, the, the main object of the thing I'm trying to do. Kedesh Loya sarich lich. I want to write this book so that no one else will ever have to read a book about the laws of the Jewish people. Unfortunately or fortunately for the Rambam, that is in fact not at all what happened. Right? I see many of you have good book Zoom backgrounds, um, full of lovely spharim, so you can see that the Rambam was not successful in his efforts. But he thought that he could basically replace the messiness of the rabbinic tradition with this. The entire oral Torah will be caught in this, you know, collected in this text. And all of the random other laws that people have made along the way between Moshe Rabbeinu and the writing of the Torah, of the Talmud. And and I will interpret them according to the ways that Ge'onim, the kind of post-Talmudic commentators, have understood them. Now, already this should give you pause because if you've spent any time studying Ge'onim or you've seen any Ge'onic texts in your morning seder, you will know that the Ge'onim themselves do not always agree about what the Talmud means. So he's going to have to do a lot of interpretive work to make this happen. Okay. Lefichach Karati Shem Mishne Torah. I'm going to call this the repetition of the Torah because I think I have repeated everything for you, the entire Torah Shabbalpeh, the entire Oral Law, and you don't need it, anything else anymore. Okay. Adam Torah First, you read the Torah. Good advice. And then you read this book here, the Mishnah Torah. And then you know the entire oral Torah. All you got to do is read this book. And you don't need to read any other books. The Rambam thinks that he has replaced the Gemara entirely. And he has collected everything that's in the Gemara and put it into a book. Now, immediately, this leads to the, fa- the, the set of questions that the commentators love to do. Well, if he thinks that he got everything that's in here from the, from the Gemara, then you can play the fun game where you decide you're going to be the Kesef Mishnah and you're going to go and find all the things that were in the Gemara and attach them appropriately to the, um, to the sections of the Mishnah Torah. So the commentators love to do this. Thus breeds a whole tradition of commentary on the Ramah. But what's important here is he thinks this is a summation of the oral Torah. Now the problem of course becomes, and it is a problem in our section, but also in other places, that the oral Torah and what the Rambam puts in don't match up. And importantly for us, sometimes the Rambam discusses things in the Mishnah Torah that don't have obvious precedent in rabbinic sources. So not, sometimes he's got a soya comes to a conclusion. He's going to codify the conclusion in a nice Hebrew for you. Great, you save me all the work that some of you are doing in morning seder very painstakingly. You've eliminated that. But sometimes he's going to codify things that don't obviously have basis in a rabbinic tradition. For example, in Hilchot Yesodei HaTorah, he's got a great account of Aristotelian physics, which are not shockingly in the Talmud for the most part. Um, Okay, our chapter is also an example where this explanation is problematic. Might not be impossible, but it's problematic. Questions about that? Okay. Uh,
2: yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Echo. Okay,
2: (laughs) sorry. Um, so, uh, the question I have is, um. Could we read this introduction he's not saying you're going to get a complete uh, knowledge of the oral Torah, but uh, but something more akin to like uh, a, a we're going to touch on everything that you that there is to know about and sort of like, it, it, you know, the the, lesha, the the language of this isn't uh, isn't the. Uh, Torah uh, Shalem, it's, it's Kula. So I wonder if it's like, yeah, there's anything. So it's in every there area. There. So
1: I think you can read it that way. And I think it, it like kind of retrojectively, if you want to compare this to the Shulchan Aruch, you're going to be like, oh, yes, it's Torah Kula, Lime like these other codes that only codify the parts that we actually do now. But I, the Ramam, have included all of the. Um, temple related stuff that other people don't codify. That's a kind of an ahistorical reading in the sense that your reading is being driven by texts written after the Rambam. Um, but it nonetheless, it seems like already in the text that the Ramam had, like it was a kind of radical step to codify all the temple stuff. Um, so I think you can read it that way. But he does seem to say, um, here and in like if you look at 41 or 40, um, you'll see that he he really thinks that the process of learning through the Gemara, figuring out who wins in some rabbinic argument, then figuring out what do the Goonians say and how do they codify it, and then trying to decide like what on earth am I supposed to do, is basically an enterprise that he thinks is not all that intellectually productive. And he really He really thinks that what you want to do is figure out, like, you got to figure out how to keep the mitzvah. And it's good that there are people who've already done a lot of work about that. But you got to figure that out. And then you got to do real Torah, i.e. you're going to contemplate God's oneness. And this other stuff is a distraction because fundamentally, right, it's only about the welfare of the body. And the welfare of the body is perfectly important, but it's not the subject of contemplation that you need to spend all day on. So now, again, depending on how like philosophical, like whether you come to the Rambam as mostly an Aristotle guy or trying to kind of come up with a good reading of the Rambam that sits with your kind of con- maybe contemporary or at least like, you know, modern uh, from sensibilities. Then you're going to say, oh no, he doesn't mean that all Talmud Torah is bad. You know, he doesn't really say that. But there's, there's good evidence that it seems like he doesn't really think That intellectually, the exercise of Talmud Torah is itself productive. Um, You can have fun then reading, like what does he think Hilchot Talmud? Like what does he think the regulation of the study of Talmud Torah looks like, and what does he think Torah? What what is Torah, and how does it work? That's another sugar, but but a good point. I think he definitely wants you to be able to read this book and know what to do. Right? like He wants you to be able to like look up like, OK, I did this thing with a spoon in my kitchen. What do I do now? He wants you to be able to read the book and know the answer to that question. Can I eat this cheese? Yes, no. OK. All right, good. One more piece of background, and then we're going to get to the main event. All right? This is like a, a kind of working up to the main event of wackiness. All right. So I want you to see a little bit of that was sort of the project of the Mishnah Torah as a whole. And we had some questions about why we would include all kinds of detailed wacky advice in that project, but I also want you to see that there's a kind of particular, specific project to Hilchot Deo, because in a way, Deot is one of those sections that doesn't obviously fit the um, the protocol here, right? It's not like, oh yes, he's got a nice section on Shritah, good. He's got a story about how you're gonna. You know, where you're going to shackle the animal, how, how you're going to deal with the knife, all of that jazz. He's got a kind of dedicated section. He's got a section about like what is Shabbos and how do I do Shabbos? What is Yom Kippur? How do I do Yom Kippur? Okay, all of those kinds of things. But also Deo doesn't really fit that. So what on earth is it, right? Um, part of it is, you'll notice I didn't translate Deo here, which was on purpose, because in fact like there's a lot of debate about like does it mean opinions? Does it mean something else? Why is he doing this? This is the, the, Hilcho Deod is kind of one of the philosophical peaks of the Mishnah Torah, and uh, to sum it up in you know one one Mishnah of, of many prakim, um, this is an account of how to be a good and wise person, based on Aristotle's doctrine of the mean. So you can see him uh, spell this out here very nicely in chapter one. Haderachay Sharahei midah beinonit. Deah, So in like a couple lines up from this, he said, people come in lots of different types. Some of them get angry quickly, some of them don't. But the good way to be is to be right in the middle. Right? Don't don't go to one extreme or the other. End up right in the middle. de La All right. hakatsot. Right. Really, draw a line. Find the middle of the line. All right. So, for the Ramam, the best way to preserve the welfare of your body, right? So that he will be sound in body is to. Follow the middle
2: path.
1: Good Aristotelian doctrine. So chapter four, or Hilcho as a project, is designed to remind you how to find that middle path. That's the goal. So you'll see some evidence of that in chapter four. But one issue is like Dea, if we translate often, this is, and here this is a, a, a published translation from I think the 1930s. Um, the dia translated as disposition. It's not clear that like some of the stuff he's talking about is really about this disposition or that or how to find a middle road. But you'll see some of these some of these challenges as we go. So one right just just so we've kind of sum up where we've been. We want a couple measuring sticks for this chapter. One measuring stick is is this, to what extent is this best understood as a repetition of. The oral Torah, and in how might it be connected to the oral Torah, and second, to what extent is this a story about the Aristotelian mean and finding the middle path, not the Goldilocks approach, not too much, not too little. Um, if you want to get, uh, uh, if you want to like go down a scholarship rabbit hole, um, one thing you can do is try to square this passage, which seems to say the middle way is best with this earlier passage which says, try to get all of your desires to go away as best as possible. Because that seems like actually this is talking about an extreme behavior. And this seems like it's talking about a middle of the road. Don't not eat at all. Don't not feel this desire at all. Feel it a little bit. Don't get overcome by it, but still follow it. So this is a good Kasia on the Raman that you you can spend a lot of time thinking about. Sarah? Mm -hmm. I think
2: I learned that uh, the Rambam also does say maybe you're going to get to this, that if a person is at the opposite extreme, he should go to the other extreme in order to come back to the Shvil Zahav, to the middle road.
1: Yes. So he does think um, this is a famous, famous issue. So in chapter one, he says this. In chapter two, um, and, and he says, okay, find this, find this middle ground. Example, he gives don't be too angry, but don't be like a rock who never ever gets angry. In chapter two, like two lines down, he's like, never be angry. It is prohibited by rabbinic law. Okay, this is like, make your mind go crazy if you're a Rambam scholar, because all of a sudden he's like, he's contradicted himself. Like, not like, oh, he says this in one line. You know, when he's writing in Hebrew, he says this. When he's writing in Arabic, he says that. No, in one chapter, and then like literally the next page, he says the opposite thing. So, The thing you've pointed out is kind of used often to to kind of square the circle um, by saying, oh, what you should do if you're not on the middle path is swing yourself to the other side. So if I'm someone who always gets angry, I should try never to become angry at all. And if I'm someone who never gets angry, I should become like a really raving, angry person. And then maybe I will end up in the middle. That's the... That is another share. Okay, Um, so I want us now, here's what we're gonna do next. I'm gonna send you into Chavrutot, um, which will be randomly assigned for about 15 minutes, during which I want you to do as follows. I want you to read the first opening Mishnah of chapter four, as you see here. And then what I want you to do is click either this link, which just takes you to the bottom of the source sheet, or to Safari if that's more comfortable for you, um, and click over and read around a little. I don't want you to read the whole thing from beginning to end because it will take you forever. Click and pick up with your chavruta two Mishnayot that you choose on your own, just to see what and read them and see what he's doing and like. Try to come up with your for yourself a story about why these things are there and how they connect to some of the goals of the two sections that we've that we've seen. If you don't want to go to Chavrutah and you're like, I don't want to be in a breakout room. That sounds very unpleasant. You can hang out with me here in the main session and we will read stuff together. But I really want to encourage you to learn together in Chavrutah because I think first of all, Chavrutah is like a good important. Um, mode of learning and thinking and also because I want you to have some feeling of being in a baby drash with other people. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna encourage that but but give the option of of hanging out here. So okay if you could. Hi friends. Um, we're gonna read through some of these sources together. Um, but I definitely want to encourage you, since this is the, the non chavruta chavruta to feel free to um, unmute yourself and jump in with questions as we move through this this pretty wacky chapter. Also, if you are on Facebook Live, similarly, feel free to write something in. Okay, so we're gonna start at the beginning, then we're gonna we're gonna hop around a little and see what we can find in this this text. Okay. Here we go. Ho il vihiota goofbari hashem it is like the ways of God among them is to be have a healthy body. And a, I think I'm, Shalim is kind of important here. A, a complete body is, is part of the ways of, of God. Okay. It's important to be healthy. So far, so good. It is impossible to be ill and to... Um, understand or to know God. This is some of what we, we saw in the, in the guide as well earlier. Therefore, a person needs to distance themselves from things that destroy the body. Good line next time you're with someone who is not following social distancing protocols, you can just say, you need to distance yourself from things that destroy the body. All right, good. Okay, you need to stay away from things that are. Um, you need to you need to accustom yourself to things that are good and healthy, um, and that that uh, like impart life. These are they. He's going to tell you good. I want to know the answer. He's going to tell me. Don't eat unless you're hungry. All right. Don't drink unless you're thirsty. Don't wait to uh, use the bathroom, even one second. Rather, stand up immediately and use the bathroom immediately. Okay. So if you just had this Mishnah and nothing else, you'd be like, all right, he's giving me some good advice. It seems like it basically almost fits the kind of golden mean picture. At least it's like only do something if you maybe better than the golden mean picture. It fits that initial picture of like minimize your desire, right? Do whatever you have to do to kind of get yourself through. Don't do more. Only eat when you're hungry. When you need to use the bathroom, get up and go. All right. So, you would think, ah, that's very nice. He's now ended the story, and I basically know everything I need to know. Well, mm, alas, twas not to be. We're going to pop down here. Um, Okay. Let's try this one. Leolam kesheya haladam yashev mikomo. Yashevi mikomo. Oite altsmo. A person, when they eat, should sit where they are, or they should lean on their left side. Remember Pesach, people lean to your left, right? That's that's he he actually he thinks that there's like biological reason for that. Okay. The don't walk. The don't don't ride a horse. The Don't go and wander about um, until your food has been digested. Anyone who doesn't do this will get very ill. Bizarre. So this, I think, like is already crossing into the realm of like a little bit wacky, right? He he doesn't think you can go for a walk after you've eaten. On the other hand, I'm a runner and I feel very conscious of this because it is actually important to to regulate these things. So you can see, like, some of this kind of makes sense, but it's it, it's not like super wacky. All right. Let's see if we can find a good good crazy one. All right. Here is good advice for what to eat in the summertime. Only eat cold food. Okay, don't have too many spices and eat a lot of vinegar. Okay, and then you should in the winter you should eat lots of spices and eat warm food um, and you should eat mustard and chiltid is usually. um, What's the word for the thing in Amba? Anyway, they they call it astafita, but there's another name for it. Anyway, the spice. And in this way, you should continue to do in cold zones and warm zones in each and every place that that which is fit for it. So, if you live, if it's winter, but you live in a place that's super warm, you should follow the warm place rules, and vice versa. In other words, react to your environment. Okay. So this already, I think, will give us some tools to be like, all right. Let's like amp the question up to its like highest level. Am I actually violating a mitzvah in the Torah, or at least a mitzvah of the of the rabbis, um, if I fail to eat vinegar in the summertime? Hopefully not, because I don't usually eat very much vinegar. Um, if I fail to eat um, hardal and hilt in the wintertime, have I done something bad? More importantly, if I eat ice cream in the winter, has something gone wrong, right? Okay. So already, I think this can start to show you some of the interpretive challenges posed by this text, which are just like, to what extent does he mean this as like, just general, like, good, good, etza, like good nice advice. And to what extent is this actually something that we need to take a little bit more intensely and seriously? Is this something that he thinks is, has the status of oral law Right, which would be kind of put it alongside all kinds of mitzvot that seem, that are just derabbana mitzvot, that are more familiar to us. Um, Like, I don't know, does this have the same status as Dominic Mariv? Maybe it does. That's kind of weird, right? Like, hopefully it doesn't. Otherwise, you know, some of us are maybe in trouble. Um, So this should should give you a sense of like, some of the challenges. We'll look at one more and then I will uh, close breakout rooms for people. Um, All right. He doesn't like you to eat fruits. Don't eat tree fruits. The your baby Don't drink dry, don't eat dry ones. The inserichlum Don't and like definitely don't drink unripe ones. But if they haven't, um If they're really unripe, then they're like knives to the body, like really don't eat them. And also, carob is bad forever. I don't know if I disagree with that as a general notion, but only because it's a bad replacement for chocolate. Oh, okay. And don't eat uh, citrus fruits except um, in the summer, in small quantities. It's bizarre, I think, because citrus usually grows in the winter, so I don't know what he's on about there. Okay. Good for us, we can eat dates on almonds and grapes. And he's gonna give you a whole list of other things that you need to do. So again, like if we really um, take that uh, take that seriously, we have like a lot of really detailed dietary laws that we don't follow, so either right we have a sort of tradition of interpretation that says oh this is not that central, um, or we have to kind of reckon with like why have we jettisoned this thing that he seems to think kind of has equal status with other pronouncements that he makes about rabbinic Clock. So I think with that I will call everyone back to the main session and we'll hear a little bit about what. Um, what people might have gathered as they, they read some of these texts. All right, everyone. So I'm interested to hear, maybe people can just pop in the chat like anything you noticed or that surprised you about this pretty wacky little text, or feel free to unmute and just like, tell, some, tell us something you observed. So, um, okay. Don't eat fruit, but wait, eat fruit. Yes, good. Don't eat fruit, but not this kind of fruit. But maybe eat some fruit. Also eat citrus in the winter, which is kind of bizarre, or in the summer when citrus often like uh, is more of at least in um, I don't know that much about like agriculture in North Africa, but at least in 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 the US, uh, citrus is a kind of a winter thing. Um, I'm interested in the person who said good health advice from the doctor. What things you read? Well, basically
0: that's. Uh... Uh, you should uh, eat uh, 75% uh, of, of your maximum stomach uh, capacity, and that are things that doctors still say till this very day. Yeah, So good. Just uh, um, a summary of the doctor's manual from, from that time.
1: Right, good. So you, Baruch uh, Shekivan, it's good that you've kind of like clicked into to how this text is often read. Um, it seems like, One way to read this chapter is to be like, okay, this is a summary of what the Rambam thought was the best medical advice of his day. And he codified it because he thinks there's a kind of general mitzvah to take care of your body. right? Noticeably, he doesn't have the kind of like, it's a gift from God theology, which we often see popping up. He thinks it's an instrument for allowing you to contemplate, like it is your brain case. That's what it is. Um, And you better take care of your brain case because your brain is super important. That's what basically a kind of parody version, but like often that's what he seems to think. But he's codified the best medical advice of the day. Now, this raises some interesting questions, right? Because on the one hand, you might say, oh, this is the best medical advice of the day. And so that means that actually, when it's become really clear to us that, you know, there's not such a problem with eating carob anymore. We can just go ahead and eat carob and we don't need to be super worried. Um, And the fact that we don't need to follow this advice because, in a certain way, it's antiquated. And he only meant it as the best that we know because he's a good kind of scientific thinker on this read. Then, right, so then we might say, oh, we disregard it. Now, I think that poses some interpretive problems. Here's here's one interpretive problem it poses for you. Um, If you think that. You might want to go and apply that principle to other things in the Torah or other things in rabbinic law, right? So in rabbinic law, there seems to be this concern that if you eat fish and meat together, you will be in danger. And this practice is held on to by some authorities and, and some communities still, right? We don't even if you you will get an you have a fish plate and you give back the fish plate, and you get a new plate, right? You don't eat. Fish and meat on the same plate because we've retained this fear about the danger, even when already in the medieval period, lots of post game were like, you know, this fish thing is like not actually in our time such a big, like dangerous, actual physical danger, but we hold on to the practice anyway. So if you really believe this thing about like holding on to the practice anyway, then you might think, oh, wait a minute, maybe I need to eat mustard seeds in the winter and I need to not eat carob and all the rest of it. So if you're gonna have the principle, this is good advice from the doctor, you might say, oh, this is good advice from the doctor, it's dated. And now what I've got to do is follow my advice from the doctor. This, right, like how this text gets used plays potentially a big role in like all coronavirus related PSOC. do I have to get the vaccine? Because a doctor tells me to. If you want to, you could read this text as giving you broad authorization to do that. Or you could say it's antiquated and actually it kind of, it means very little and I'm just gonna chuck it out. Those are, those options are, are all available to you as you read this. Um, anyone else want to just like venture, venture uh, something that they, they noticed and thought was interesting about, about what they they learned. I saw someone mention in the chat that um, you have to go to the bathroom whenever you need to, but I know also elsewhere he also says there's specific times when you should go to the bathroom. So I don't really know how that squares, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he gives you a lot of advice that I think either like you have to be a kind of you have to have a, a, a form of physical discipline and control of your body that is. I'll just say for myself, totally foreign to me. Um, or the some of the advice is very hard to follow. Helene, what were you saying? I spoke over you briefly.
2: Sorry, I said that um, j- just like in Hilchot Nida, they talk about a woman knowing about these sensations and stuff. We're just so not mindful of our bodies these days that we don't feel this or notice the same sensations they did hundreds of years ago.
1: Right. So maybe, right. I think that there's like good evidence in certain ways that like people... Um, may have had different kinds of relationships with their bodies then than they did now. On the other hand, I think like he is not advocating like I'm super tuned in to everything going on with my body approach because every time I feel a desire, I'm supposed to tamp it down. So that in a way can like lead to a, a distancing from your physical self that he thinks he's good, right? Elsewhere in in the guide, he says you should, um, he like picks up a, a verse from Shirashiriam and says, oh yes, uh, you should be like you are, you're, you're, um, your heart is awake, but your body is asleep. Meaning, don't pay attention to your body and you're contemplating as if your body isn't there. So he's, he's playing with a certain kind of um, awareness of your body, but he's also just like kind of not interested in it. Um, yeah, I don't know. I would, for example, find it very challenging to sleep in a very specific position and then halfway through the night rotate to be in a different position. I don't think I could pull that off. If you can, like, that's pretty amazing. Um, but so some of the advice seems hard to follow. And I don't know whether he thinks there, I think like that might be a good place to kind of lean on if you want to just read this as General etza. right? So when I was talking to Erwin, I said, oh yeah, you can read this as good advice from the doctor. And if it's good advice from the doctor, there's a case that there's like actual halakhic force to it and you better follow it right? That's like one one mode. Um, but you might say, this is not advice from the doctor. This is like etza from the Rambam. The Rambam is telling you how to be good. And he's just giving you good advice. And it's not like meant to be, have some intense medical weight or even some intense halachic weight. It's just like he thinks it would be better to be this way. But he's not going to come and be like, you are over on a mitzvah de Rabbanam. Like you violated a rabbinic commandment just because you slept on the wrong side of your body last night. Right, like he doesn't, that, that's kind of crazy. That's a going too far.
2: But um, as a dietitian, I can tell you that everything he says about GI health is 100% true, especially about fiber, chewing your food thoroughly and not drinking during meals.
1: Yeah, he has, he's so right. So a lot of like, if you're a kind of historian of medicine, you can find stuff here that seems really kind of, um, seems sort of before it's time, um, or at least seems like it's surprising to us that they, that they knew and understood. Okay. Um, anyone else want to want to jump in here before I before I go ahead?
0: Okay. Yeah, I think the the only problem is that all the paragraphs in the Mishnah Torah are called halachot,
1: rather than not just
0: again. all the paragraphs in the Mishnah Torah are called halachot.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> the problematic but, thing uh, with with the suggestion that maybe just. Uh, Some free-floating advice, rather than halacha.
1: Right. If you really right, like the way we, even the way we talk about this text, right? We the Rambam is quoted as, you know, peric blank halacha blank. That doesn't. That's like doesn't come out of thin air. It comes from treating this as a an authoritative text. Um. So you can't you know, if you want to read all kinds of other things the Rambam says is halachically authoritative, then like it's a little bizarre to say, oh yes, but chapter four in Hilf-o-de-ud, I don't take that seriously. Well oh, it fits are You like cherry pick it out. That, that's bizarre, especially because he thinks it really is a restatement of what the, the oral Torah has to tell you.
2: Well, it fits under the mitzvah of
1: to guard your soul exceedingly. Yeah, so it, it, it definitely does. I'm just not sure that like, the only way to guard your soul is to never eat carobs, right? Like, I don't know, you're the dietitian, I'm not, but it seems like a little bit of carob in my moderation, probably not gonna hurt you. So much to yeah. <laughs> yeah, like probably isn't like, isn't, as I said to, to those who stayed in the main session is unfortunate because it's a poor substitute for chocolate, but um, in other ways, like, isn't gonna harm you so much. All right, so I want to um, just look with you look, look with you at the last section of this chapter um, because I think it also gives you an interesting picture about what he thinks he's trying to do. And then um, on Thursday, we're going to look at how some postgame pick up on this crazy chapter. So we're going to go all the way down to the bottom. So here's, here's a sort of summation, um, often with the Rambam the final section of a whole, like chunk of halacha, is often where he does a lot of the interesting interpretive work. So there's a lot going on in the the closing sections of like the closing section of mikvot is like a great statement on what he thinks mitzvot are in general. Um, other places, so here too, like the last little chunk is where the where some of the real meat is. Um, that's a good like just kind of general rule to have in your head for reading the Rambo. All right. Okay, I will write. I think this is like a language of legal responsibility. I will kind of swear to you that if you follow this advice, you won't become ill. And you will live long and well, and then you will die and you will, in your old age and not need a doctor. He's got a lot of confidence in himself. I think that's like, the Ramam is often a little chutzpadek and this is like an amazing line of being chutzpadek, right? Like if you really think that if you just do all this stuff you're gonna be fine. You have an interesting picture of how how bodies work. Um, That I think in our current moment feels at least to me feels like quite dissonant. Okay, Okay, and he will um, he will be sound and well and, and preserved for his whole life. except, and here's a big exception, um, if his body was sort of already formed poorly from the start.
2: Pre-existing conditions.
1: Pre-existing conditions. The Rambam believes in not covering pre-existing conditions. Don't quote me on that. The Rambam does not think that. But in a certain way, he does think that if you have some sort of an, an initial problem, then following this isn't going to help you. Now, the, the most important thing I think is to actually flip that and read it the other way, not oh yeah, I've I've got an escape clause for someone with a pre-existing condition, but that he thinks that medical problems can be understood in two ways, either as a result of somebody's choices or as a result of Trilat Briato, of someone's kind of innate state. And so that for him is the theory behind explaining medical issues. There's not, there's sort of, maybe there's room, there's not a lot of room for chance here, right? There's human choices and there's something that seems to be kind of congenital and given given from the start.
2: I'm not clear that they understood contagion the way we do today.
1: Exactly. So they don't seem to understand contagion, although we will see in a moment that he does think that there is like, they have a sense of of like plague, um, And they have a sense that that can come potentially suddenly, but they don't have a sense of like, I could just walk out and get COVID at the grocery store, right, Um, to put it in very contemporary terms. They don't, he doesn't have that quite. But
2: But he he does, does. but he does. He said, unless there's a visitation of a pestilence. Good. He does say that. Good, right. So how, I mean, (laughs) pestilence would mean contagion. No, I'm not sure though. No, I think that he may, he may not think that you're getting it transmitted from each other. He may believe that it's all coming down from, let's say God, or it could be you know, the fleas and the rats, but it doesn't necessarily talk about, I don't think that he's getting the idea that you could sneeze on somebody and get sick from that.
1: Yeah, so I don't think-
2: but that, that would he... be a visitation. That would be God if one believes in God. It's still God's doing in the end,
1: good. So I think that for the Rambam, the Rambam is always going to want to make the move that you just made, which is like, oh, it's not like God like sweeps in and brings a plague. God set up the world in such a way that plagues happen. And there are certain things that you can do that will bring on a plague. Now, there's not like, Does he have a detailed story about like, what is the mechanism by which you bring on the plague? Well, no, not entirely because there are some scientific questions left unanswered for him. But at the same time, he really does, he always wants to make this naturalizing move of like, it's not that God sweeps in and intervenes in history or in human affairs, because that doesn't match the picture of the Rambam's God in a lot of ways. Um, But it's nonetheless the case that Um, like there, there are things that can happen quote unquote, suddenly, even if their explanations are not totally known, but there are things that are known about them at the same time though, I don't think he has a notion of like, there are aerosols in the air. They're going to breathe them in. And then this person is going to get sick, or even there's going to be a flea on this rat and it's going to jump and bite you. And then you're going to get the plague. Um, but he does, they do have a sense that like, sometimes these sudden things happen. Right? Oh, imtavo makat dever. Right? This, this is like straight out of Shmo. Right? So that, that should give you a sense of like potentially strong divine intervention. But actually, in point of fact, the Ramam has a complicated story about how he thinks God intervened in the plagues. Different here. All right. Oh, makat batsoreth le'ola or this, this kind of plague could come to the world. Now, if you wanna like read leolam Olam really strongly, you can be like, oh, it's sort of out there in the world. And then I go out and get it. And that might be close to contagion or, or something like that. I think you could go there. All right, fine. Can I just interject for one second? Please do. Um, during the Black Plague, the Jews didn't get it as
2: often as other people because we washed our hands, right? That's part of what we do. Uh, we wash our hands before we, you know, uh, before we eat bread. Um, this, of course, was twisted by anti-Semites. But nevertheless, could this also be something that he's thinking of? That God not associating with washing the hands, but just looking at the fact that Jews were less likely to get the plague or whatever was going yeah. around than others. Does that mean
0: God is intervening?
1: So, I don't know that that totally can be the explanation here for a couple of just like historical reasons. He's comparing his place of comparison are, are Muslims rather than Christians. So, Muslims actually have a more intense set of washing practices even than Jews. Um, and so, it's not clear actually that Jews would have been washing more than their people in their surroundings. Um, and so the, the sense that like Jews be, were kind of immune or whatever to the plague is, is mostly attached to um, stories about medieval Ashkenaz rather than Spain and North Africa. So I'm not sure that that like kind of checks out historically, but it may definitely influence readers of this passage who are um, in Ashkenaz and kind of plugged into those stories. And so when they come upon uh, when an Ashkenazi commentator comes upon a passage like this they may say oh yeah like this really will um this this passage kind of explains how we think about this as divine intervention but overall the Rambam is not going to be a big fan of stories that have God sort of like and then God swept in and brought a plague and um, that kind of strong divine intervention in human affairs is one that makes the Ramam kind of um, so he overall tends not to use, to use those explanations. But again, because he's used the biblical language here, um, he's opened himself up to readers doing that. And so readers and Ashkenaz who are kind of on that page will just like snap it up. Is that helpful? All right, good. So now, right before he told you, follow all these rules if you're healthy. If you're not, now he's going to tell you what to do. Only a healthy person should follow these rules. But someone who is ill, or someone who has uh, some body part that is ill, Or someone who is badly, who has, has you know, done bad practices for a long time. all of those people have different things that they need to do. the. And they have different practices that I will describe in my nice book about medicine. Um, known as pure Moshe in its Hebrew translation wild ride. If you want to find it on Hebrew books, it's there. Um, Okay. So they have a different book. Now, again, it's worth noticing what's happened here. He said they, their stuff is not kind of, he's opened up the possibility that what um, the rules that sick people need to follow and the practices they need to do are not spelled out in the oral law. They're in the Pirqai Moshe. And in fact, in the Pirqai Moshe itself, he says that basically what he's done is gone through the famous physician Galen's work and for the most part, copied it in good Arabic um, with a few addenda that he has listed for the reader. So he's gone outside the tradition for those people. Now you might say, Oh, good. The Rambam knows that actually the good place to get medical advice is not from the Talmud Bavli, but from the medical literature. This right might be like kind of comforting and useful for your own purposes, right? For kind of contemporary purposes. Or you might say, you might come to this with a sort of disability studies inflected lens and say, wait a minute, what the Rambam has done is said, I'm gonna give you in my restatement of the oral law all the rules about how to act if you're a healthy person. And if you're not a healthy person, in fact you're not, like this isn't, it sort of doesn't fall into this category. It's something else. And it actually doesn't get counted in the statement of the oral law. And that might be seen as a kind of removing them from the core of, let's say, the rabbinic project or something like that. That might be like a a kind of more disturbing reading about, about why he makes this move. If you live in a place where there is no doctor, if you are ill, or if you are well, better do all the stuff. If you are ill, don't go reading the Pirkei Moshe and trying to figure out what you're supposed to do. Just do the healthy person stuff because there's no doctor there to guide you. All right. All these things actually basically will work for you. So in a certain way, he's qualified here, right, what he said above. Uh-huh. Okay, so in this verse, or in this, sorry, in this halakha, he said, if you live in a place where there is no doctor, here's what to do. Classic Raman, next line. If you live in a place that doesn't have these 10 things, conveniences is is the 1930s translation talking, um, you shouldn't live there. Thing number one, rofveh. Wait a minute. He just told me what to do if I live in a place with no rofveh. Ah, problem, alert. Okay. But other people, sure, right? So if you're a Talmud hacham and you're like really taking all this stuff seriously, and I think more importantly for him, you're really committed to the intellectual goals that being a Talmud hacham for the Ramam imply, then you better live in a place with a doctor. Because if you're going to encounter some obstacle to your study, you are not going to be able to seek appropriate guidance. In a certain way, if he really believes that a talmid Hakim can follow all the advice, it's not obvious why he would require this. right? Because above, he seems to say, oh, you know, if you follow all the rules, you're going to be good to go. You don't need to worry. Now, maybe he thinks that Talmud Haham only needs the doctor if there's a plague. Maybe that's what he thinks but maybe also this is a, this is an almost a moment of, of recognizing even more uncertainty than he was able than he was willing to give with the, the notion of the plague above. I think either of those options is kind of available to us in reading this. Um, it's also noticeable that this kind of more than any of the texts we've seen, um, is a kind of good quotation from the Bavli as opposed to, or an adaption of a text from the Bavli, as opposed to just kind of, you know, good medical advice. Um, so this text, more than all the others, is he sort of ended on a note that's where the connection to the, the Torah Shabbat is super obvious. Um, and that may be just like a way of giving the reader in the last line a like reminder that this is really Torah. Like don't think that you can get yourself off the hook here. This is really Torah. Um, I'm gonna remind you that that's the case, right? So here's the list: you need to have a, a physician, you need to have an uman, might be some kind of surgeon. Complicated. Beit There better be a bathhouse. Um, there needs to be also a comfort station. I love that as a translation of Beit a bathroom. That's what it means, it does not mean a comfort station. But the 1930s translation wants to tell you that it's a comfort station. And mime, you need, to, you need water or a river or a spring, a shul, a school, <coughs> um, someone who, who keeps records, and someone who likes tzedakah, and a court, and some kind of uh, person who's going to enforce the deeds, enforce what the court does. So in a certain way, right? Um, the Ramam has returned you to where we started, which is the social order, right? The way that you maintain your body affects the social order, but it's also the case for the Ramam that the only way you're going to be able to maintain your body appropriately as a Talmid Hacham, someone who's really invested in this intellectual project, is if you live in a society that has a kind of good social structure, um, that will support your various needs and actually protect you in a moment where you are vulnerable. Um, so I think we have some good thinking to do about what it means to be a talmid haham in the current reality um, that that the Rambam has has left for us. So um, I've really enjoyed learning with you all. I'm ho- hopefully i um, gonna see you all again on Thursday, and we'll look at some chuvot that that use this uh, use this text to try to like actually uh, do some do some
2: Sarah, can I ask one more last question? Please do. Does, does the Rambam believe in the idea of lechatchila and biti meaning like ideally yes. it's better to um, you know live in a city with a doctor, but if you don't have a doctor, practice all the practices of a, as a healthy person?
1: Yeah, so I think that's basic. He does believe in that, and he uses that language all the time in other halachic contexts. Um, and I think that's basically what he's doing here, right? He's saying if you live in a place where there's no doctor, here's what to do. But if you're a talmid hacham, i.e., if you want to do it like really right by the book, this is what you need to do. So I think that's basically what he's doing there. Um, And he uses that principle throughout.
0: So thank you, Sarah, for this amazing class. I'm very excited for part two. Um, thank you to everyone that joined us on Zoom, Drisha Live, and Facebook. Um, I do wanna give a quick plug for our evening programming. Uh, Winter's Mond continues tonight at 8 p.m. with a session on beekeeping by Rabbi Amalia Haas. Um, you can find out information on that class and all of our wonderful classes happening over the next week or two at our website at www.drisha.org slash classes. Thank you to everyone for attending and I hope to see you all soon.
1: Thank you so much, everyone. Thank
2: you.